They just want this Californy, so's to lug new slave states in, to abuse ye, and to scorn ye, and to plunder ye like sin. Ain't it cute to see a Yankee take such everlasting pains, all to get the devil's thank ye, helping on em weld their chains. James Russell Lowell Hello, and welcome to the Civil War Podcast, Episode 12, The Bear Flag Republic, California, Fremont, and the Kearney Expedition. For today's episode, we're rewinding the clock a bit to catch up with events in California and the West before the Mexican-American War. And of course, California was really the whole goal for President Polk. Now, California before the arrival of the United States had the distinction of a lucrative ranching economy, but also one shockingly unequal even by the standards of the day. California had originally been organized by Spanish missionaries and by other settlers with royal grants. The dawn of Mexican independence allowed for a secularizing faction to break the power of the missions in California, which were generally owed some amount of Native American or American Indian labor under a kind of feudalistic arrangement. It also fundamentally broke the ties, however, between Mexico and California. And wouldn't you know it, this goes back to our old friend Santa Ana. During the same fateful political turmoil that prompted rebellion in Texas, Valentin Gomez Faria issued an edict in 1833 dissolving the missions. Now life is complex and there were a lot of other laws and problems relating to this, so this is deliberately simplifying many separate actions both in and outside of California over years. However, the decree for the secularization of the missions of California did push the changes that previous laws had failed in accomplishing. This was all good liberal doctrine in the sense that Mexican liberals held it. However, as often was the case in Europe, these actions did not ultimately rebound to the advantage of the government. In theory, the mission lands were to be taken from the monasteries and handed out to colonists from Mexico. In practice, however, the lands principally fell into the exclusive control of powerful landlords. The liberal faction had complained that the missions exploited the Native Americans, American Indian or indigenous peoples. Now, we can document that this was often true, but the missions also genuinely considered the interests of, quote-unquote, their people. It does seem that attitudes varied widely on either side. On some missions, the indigenous people were very nearly serfs, but at others, much more community partners. But following secularization, these peoples fell into poverty and subordination, or left for more desolate landscapes where white men rarely ventured. But regardless of whether the missions were abstractly good or abstractly bad, secularization launched a wave of self-dealing that transformed the mission lands into the personal states of the well-connected. These powerful landowners, or rancheros, traded enthusiastically with European merchants, especially the British, whose more adventurous captains were now aggressively investing in Pacific trading ventures. Besides, the merchant sailors made better customers than distant and unstable Mexico. As we've observed back in the first episodes of this series, sea travel was far easier and cheaper in this era than anything on land in the time before rail. Accordingly, the Californios thought as much about Great Britain and even America as Mexico, following the lucrative market opportunities. Sure, Mexico was geographically closer than the Atlantic world, but in this era, the great expansion of trade turned the placid Pacific into a highway of commerce. Central Mexico, however, had relatively little western trade, and its primary ports faced the Gulf. 
Californios also found that they didn't particularly rely on Mexico for much either. California lay even more distant than Texas, and Mexico could barely even sustain a military effort in the latter territory. California's wealth and trade came from the sea, not Mexico. California also took little part in the revolution against Spain and had, more or less, just remained in the orbit of Mexico due to the political structure of the old Spanish Empire. Now, this did not go unnoticed in Mexico City. Of course, the liberal faction had hoped to secure California by handing out land grants to Mexican colonists. But the reality was that breaking the missionary system cut that tie to the church in Mexico, and it created a new self-governing elite who functionally blocked the land grants. Still, relatively little happened for over a decade following Mexican independence. The very distance and the lack of ability for Mexico to control California meant that the freshly empowered rancheros had little need to indulge in revolutionary sentiment. Rebellions did happen, but in the end, California stopped short of revolution since it achieved virtual self-rule anyway. Why wage war to get the wealth and power they already, in effect, possessed? Yet nothing in the world stays the same forever, and the 1840s rolled on. The United States, in particular, began to take notice of the wealth available in California, American explorers started to probe around the borders of California, borders which were, admittedly, rather vague. Spanish and Mexican California had not thoroughly charted or defined their eastern boundaries. In reality, it had never been necessary. Worryingly for independent Mexico, during the Tyler administration, the United States consul to Mexico, a man named John Parrott, and actually brother to the Parrott involved in Polk's failed commission, stirred up a naval squadron with fanciful tales that war was imminent and that Mexico was about to sell California to Great Britain. These supposed facts were errant nonsense, but squadron commander Thomas Jones believed them and seized Monterey, California. The Tyler administration quickly backtracked in humiliation, but from then on, California kept a wary eye out for American aggression. Now, Parrott wasn't even removed, which, as you can imagine, did not bold well for American-Mexican relations. Nonetheless, Despite the looming presence of American ships off the western coast, the real threat, or opportunity, was even at that time trickling in from the east. We've already seen that Americans were slowly settling into the continental northwest, but they were also moving piecemeal into parts of the Mexican southwest and even California. Importantly, immigrants weren't especially unwanted anyway, because opportunities in California still lay open, even when accounting for the Native American lands. Many settlers were also moving into California from Europe at this time. European immigrants often arrived through the United States, and many were modestly interested in seeing California fall into the American orbit, which could offer superior trade opportunities and probably more political stability compared to Mexico. One of the almost iconic individuals who embodied the changing face of California was Johannes August Suter. Born in the southwestern corner of what is now Germany, he spent much of his life in comfortable obscurity. But after falling into some debt and having five children to support in his family, our man Johannes dodged the law in 1834 by sailing to New York. There, he anglicized his name to John Sutter and began a life of travel and adventure. The newly minted Mr. Sutter went all the way overland to the Oregon Territory, took a ship to the Kingdom of Hawaii, worked his way to Alaska at the time under Russian colonization, and finally ended his journeys in California in 1839. By 1840, Sutter had set his sights on permanently staying in California, 
which he did by achieving recognition as a Mexican citizen and starting a permanent settlement called Sutter's Fort, although he himself dubbed it New Helvetia, within modern-day Sacramento. A man on the make, Sutter followed the rich California tradition for powerful landowners by demanding service of the American Indians living on quote-unquote his land. Not coincidentally, those who resisted became the targets for brutal attacks or reprisals. Regardless, Sutter was about to become very important indeed, because it just so happens that not only was Sutter's Fort a convenient stop for Americans venturing into the West, but by a coincidence, Sutter had settled his home just a hair downstream of the yet-undiscovered California gold fields. So we are going to pick up with him again later, because in the meantime we have to get through the Mexican-American War again. Senator Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri made much of his career glorifying the expansive spirit of the West. He never lived to see the romantic depictions of cowboys, gold hunters, and adventurers in fiction, but perhaps more than anyone else, he helped create the reality that lay behind it. Originally from North Carolina, Benton fought in the War of 1812 under Andrew Jackson, and later went up to Missouri to seek his own fortune. This he did, and settling alongside many others like himself, he kept his gaze on the setting sun. Like Jackson, Thomas Benton did not view the United States at this time as entirely secure. However, he considered that the open lands to the West were an opportunity as well as a threat. While Jackson sought security in the Indian removal policy, Benton wanted to acquire the vast prairie stretching to the Rocky Mountains, thus denying them to any other European or colonial power. Both practical and political reasons existed for his policy in this area. First, the United States lacked a natural western border, while the Great Lakes formed a reasonable northern border with British North America, and the ocean and sea set the limit east and south. Not only did this make westward expansion natural, it also provided no reasonable defense against invasion. The eventual addition of the Pacific to Benton's ambitions simply recognized that there wasn't much of a reason to stop growth in that direction, at least not short of the Pacific Ocean. Besides, with the peaceable agreement with Great Britain over Oregon, Americans were already spilling over onto those shores. However, another factor lay in the central location of Missouri and St. Louis. This city seemed tailor-made to serve as the gateway to the West, and in fact expeditions and trade did flow through it all the time. More expansion meant more trade, and more goods to transit to... New York or, or New Orleans via the Mississippi-Ohio River system, or eventually the growing railroad network. Now Benton was right there on the ground floor observing this opportunity, and he wanted to make the most of it. So Thomas Hart Benton went to great lengths to popularize the idea of westward growth. He'd shouted in the halls of Congress naturally after taking the office of senator in 1821, but he also wrote and promoted pamphlets, literature, and other information for mass media. As we will discuss, he took an active role in deliberately creating the mythos of the West. Now, one idea that he pushed forward, but did not exactly create himself, was manifest destiny. Now, this is a phrase that almost every American schoolchild will hear, probably at length. In theory, it relates to this notion that Americans saw themselves as having an inherent destiny to expand the Pacific. It is often held that this concept sparked the Mexican-American War. There are several problems with this notion, however. First, it's not clear how many Americans seriously held it, let alone voted on account of it. And second, 
If this was such an fundamental idea to the entire age, it took an awful long time to be named. In 1845, editor and prominent Democrat John O'Sullivan coined the phrase. Probably. Maybe. Actually, it's difficult to trace with any precision, but he did popularize the notion in December of that year. However, this raises certain questions. If the idea was literally written up in December of 1845, how much impact could it have had in starting a war just a few months later? Was this really anything more than a political support piece created to advance the party interests of President Polk? Polk, after all, was already scheming to launch a war to acquire California and the West, though a very large portion of the country would come to oppose his motives and methods. But even as President Polk sparked the war, he spent much of his time ignoring the major theaters of the war in Mexico proper, where the conflict was finally settled. Instead, he focused on California and the Southwest. Polk wanted to get a military expedition into the region he intended to seize, and picked Mr. Stephen Kearney to lead the force. Kearney was a very experienced soldier, a founding officer of the very first U.S. Cavalry Force, and one who had extensive experience traveling the West. Kearney received his promotion to Brigadier General and organized a force of 2,000 to move out of Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, bound for Santa Fe, New Mexico. In order to move this force, Kearney pulled up almost every available wagon and cart, which is why General Taylor ran short. And although partly made up of militia, the force Kearney took with him included nearly every soldier not already with Taylor, limiting any reinforcements the latter might receive. Now, some additional adept negotiation allowed Kearney to pick up reinforcements from the Mormon battalion. These religiously motivated militiamen earned a reputation for high morale and discipline despite the absence of rigorous training. For their part, the government salary would make it easier to move the Mormons west in the foreseeable future. Now, despite the complete absence of regular Mexican forces, Kearney did have plenty to contend with given the difficult terrain and long supply lines. Still, his disciplined movement and extensive logistical preparation allowed the campaign to proceed more or less smoothly. Of course, that meant soldiers only grew thirsty enough to drink from foul, muddy water that even the horses turned away from. But at least they weren't dying of dehydration in the great American desert. Along the long, dry road from Kansas, the troops stopped at Bent's Fort in what is now southern Colorado. This was a trade station where Native Americans, Mexicans, and Americans all mixed freely. Here, one could buy all kinds of goods, making the long overland trail. The prices might appear outrageous nearly anywhere else, but then dragging all those wares safely across many miles of dry wilderness without a river or railroad, well, that brought things back to almost pre-industrial civilization. Here, Kearney could and did resupply, and additionally, pick up information regarding New Mexico. But he also received the aid of a traveling American trader, James McGoffin. Thus, the small expedition traveled southward towards New Mexico. Now, founded at roughly the same time that the British colonies were beginning to coalesce on the eastern seaboard, New Mexico was about as different as could be imagined. Only around 60,000 souls lived there, including the tribes. Although nominally a vast territory, most inhabitants clustered around the Rio Grande as it snaked its way south. New Mexico was an isolated place, and more or less left to its own devices under both Spanish and Mexican rule. It also existed in a constant state of low-level conflict with all of those tribes nearby. 
raids by most parties for sheep and slaves, or sometimes just murder, occurred so frequently as to be quite unremarkable. And the civilization of New Mexico most definitely did not always come off the better when it came down to violence and reprisal. But even so, the people of New Mexico were a hardy stock, and they had made a living in an often tough environment for over two centuries, and they knew the land very well. When pushed too far by the Navajo or Apache, they could fight back with sudden ferocity. And they were organized in a way that enabled complex political actions, as well as being connected enough that they understood the possible threat of the United States. So Kearney could not have been surprised when he discovered, to his front, a Mexican militia of 4,000 under Governor Manuel Armijo. Pleased? Definitely not. But likely not surprised. Set to defend Santa Fe, Armijo had a substantially inferior force, at least in training. However, the difficult desert landscape of Apache Pass could make a defense far easier here than almost anywhere else on Earth. But Kearney had one advantage which he may not have known about. Manuel Armijo was many things, both a scion of some of the first families of New Mexico and possibly a livestock thief. But he was not known for his vigorous martial qualities. As governor, he made a habit of collecting the ears of those who offended him, and his personal fortune probably swelled on bribes. To some degree, this was almost normal, at least in New Mexico, but it did not necessarily help him set up a staunch defense. Although the citizens of New Mexico rallied to their own cause, Armijo was still nominally in charge, and he was more than willing to talk terms before fighting, so ultimately there would be no fighting. After some private discussions with James McGoffin, Armijo came to believe that defeat was inevitable. His impromptu militia were armed with outdated guns, some bows, and maybe even spears. Accordingly, Armijo instructed his army to disband, which they did in confusion and disgust. Armijo even arrayed his own cannon against the men, which at the least dissuaded them from resistance. However, we don't precisely know why Armijo made this decision. There is at least incidental evidence that he could have received a bribe for this favor. Certainly he was accused of it later on, and the civilian McGoffin, acting on Carney's behalf, asked Congress for a sizable reimbursement of money spent for very murky purposes. However, even if no such bribe occurred, Armijo made his sure his pockets were stuffed before he fled to Mexico City, at least nominally to seek forces to retake New Mexico. This failed, and he would eventually return to New Mexico and quietly lived out his days. Although, in a supreme irony, he would take up arms to defend the United States from the Confederacy over a decade later. Now in the moment, regardless of whether intimidation, money, or a combination of the two did the trick, Kearney took control over Santa Fe and proclaimed its annexation by the United States, long before the formal end of the war. He set about organizing the territory, proclaimed for all to hear that New Mexicans would receive citizenship, and constructed a fortress to hold Santa Fe under control. In the end, the people of New Mexico mostly shrugged and accepted the new order, whether or not they especially liked the intrusion. It was now August of 1846. The United States had conquered the New Mexico Territory in two months. By way of an aside, I do know that it was called Nuevo Mexico under Spanish and Mexican rule, uh, but I didn't feel that I could say that without constantly stumbling over it. My apologies. Now, for General Kearney, things seemed to be going all right. Yet before long, a call for help came from California, where John C. Fremont had gotten himself into a heap of trouble. 
Well before the war, John C. Fremont became a legend in his own time. Now, before I go any further, we need to point out a few things about Fremont because much of his career is going to end up being weird all the way through the Civil War itself. One major point is that Fremont was adventurous to a fault, a very deep fault, but almost always well-liked despite constantly falling into controversy. An inherently restless man, Fremont was extremely intelligent and energetic in equal measure, and he would have just been unhappily confined in an ordinary life. He attended Charleston College in South Carolina, of all things, but wound up expelled as he kept taking off to travel and teach himself. Thereafter, he wound up aboard a Navy ship bound for South America, then joined the Topographical Corps, which at the time was much more important than it may sound. Americans were often the first people to thoroughly chart, map, and document most of the current United States, and Fremont was right at the forefront of the task, working with settlers, explorers, and Native Americans or American Indians or indigenous peoples alike. During the course of his work, Fremont attracted attention and earned the respect of that powerful Democrat from Missouri, because yes, we've looped back to our friend Senator Thomas Hart Benton. While visiting Benton, Fremont noticed Benton's teenage daughter, Jessie, and she noticed the handsome 28-year-old Fremont in turn. The pair soon ran off and were promptly married in a Catholic ceremony of all things? I'm not even going to try to explain this. You may correctly imagine that Senator Benton exploded in an incandescent pillar of rage, but his daughter Jessie's actually smoothed things over before too long. In fact, Benton further arranged for his new son-in-law to make three expeditions to the West, which would in turn make Fremont famous throughout the nation and fire the imagination of the young and the restless. For all that he might have been irritated by Jessie's rebellious elopement, Benton perceived the same spirit that she saw in the erratic but ever-bold Fremont. And as far as it goes, Jesse and John Fremont went on to have a long, happy marriage because she was just as spirited and strong-willed as he. Besides, Fremont's exploits became Benton's propaganda and turned out to be a news sensation printed in papers across America. In any case, Fremont's expeditions provided Americans with a literal map to the Oregon Territory as well as documenting much of the world along the way in decent enough scientific accuracy. Fremont picked up legendary frontiersman Kit Carson by pure chance, and the pair made a really good team. Fremont's third expedition, however, took on an entirely different tone. In early 1845, President Polk backed the final trek, but with a key understanding. If war with Mexico just happened to break out, Fremont and his 60 men or to attempt to take California. Now, Fremont, for his part, was heading that direction anyway, both physically and arguably politically, so perhaps this made little impact on his mind. After all, either would be a great adventure. Therefore, Fremont sent out to discover the origins of the Arkansas River in mid-1845. But having done so, he decided to wing it and marched overland to California, though without a clear goal at this time. He had now been away from definitively American territory for months, but evidently still seemed as full of excitement as ever. Seeing Fremont's band stop in California, and they did near Sutter's Fort, the regional governor, a man named Castro, became immediately suspicious of the Americans. Now, he allowed them time to replenish their supplies, but then told them that, hey, you need to get on out of here. Fremont dawdled some more, trying to coordinate action between American settlers and the U.S. consul in California. This mostly failed. He backed down, 
but then suddenly raised the American flag at a camp just a few miles away. Now this was all in March of 1846, and you may know that this was in fact before any hostilities occurred regarding Taylor's force in Texas. Fremont had acted essentially on his own very questionable authority. General Castro, effectively in charge in Northern California, took a superior body of men and forced Fremont out. Although retreating to Oregon, the latter was emphatically not done with this fight. First, Fremont had just gotten into contact with Marine Corps Lieutenant Gillsby, acting on behalf of Commodore Sloat. Second, California's own government itself would provide the necessary conditions for victory. Fremont's initial call to arms had not gone well, but raising the flag caused Castro to overreact. He started pressuring other Americans in the territory, fearing they would side with Fremont. Seeing the threat, they responded by doing exactly that, because there was no one else they could turn to for support. F Sutter's Fort therefore turned into the center of American resistance, and Fremont headed back to lead it. Even before he arrived, however, the band marched on Sonoma and captured it, augmenting their collection of cannon in the process. They also whipped up a new flag design featuring a two-headed bear, hence this period is often referred to as the Bear Flag Republic. At the same time, however, U.S. Commodore and Commander of the Pacific Fleet John D. Sloat had three warships and was already in the process of capturing the regional capital at Monterey. This occurred in May of 1846, and in fact none of these men have yet anything more than rumors about the actual war taking place in southern Texas. However, Sloat had seen what Fremont was up to, and wanted to ensure that the British didn't take the opportunity to claim California for themselves. Now this was absolutely not in Sloat's nature. Unlike other men who leapt to conclusions and acted rashly, Sloat met with Californios and considered all the issues. However, rumors swirled that the British would act, and Sloat felt he had no option but to control the situation first. He also knew that this might destroy his reputation and end his career in the Navy. Ironically, he had no need for concern, because Her Majesty's Navy had no orders to act at all, and refused to start a fight without positive instructions from Whitehall. This, in theory, created a tricky situation, for Sloat claimed California for the United States, while Fremont sort of declared to the open air that he resigned his commission and was now leading the independent state of California. But this was probably a polite fiction from the get-go. Instead, Fremont took his bear flag men and united with Sloat's force. And of all things, Fremont now swore himself and his militia into naval service. So, technically, Fremont has a commission in the army, one in the Navy, and is leading an independent state, and that won't be the last title he acquires either. Now, Sloat at this point had to turn his command over to Robert Stockton. Yes, that Robert Stockton, the very same who miscast the Peacemaker and stirred up trouble in Texas, and believe me, that is only a small slice of his wild career. This force, a mix of regular soldiers, Fremont's explorers, and American settlers, fielded fewer than 500 men. As crazy as it sounds, it seemed that a few hundred would indeed be enough to capture California. By midsummer, the Americans were taking town after town and appeared to be quickly bringing the California campaign to a close. The Mexican governor retreated to Los Angeles, ceding most of California, and Fremont closed in with several hundred soldiers to take the city. Now, this is August of 1846. And it is quite literally only at this moment that confirmation of the actual war finally arrived in California. 
retroactively putting some validity on the actions of Fremont. Now, instead of risking being hung as a traitor, Fremont's absurd luck continued. He appeared to be a visionary hero. Unfortunately, what Fremont had so easily won could also be easily lost. Not all Californios felt like living under the Stars and Stripes. The speed of conquest had taken the region by surprise, but now a loyalist faction stirred, and they had horses, guns, and men. In September, Captain Jose Maria Flore evicted the Americans from Los Angeles. He then proceeded to block Stockton from retaking the city or region, since, and I know this is a complicated explanation, ships aren't very useful on land. Stockton couldn't command anything more than a cannon shot away from the shoreline. He did, however, sail down to San Diego Bay in order to regroup in an area that he thought he could control a little bit more easily. However, Flore also lacked the resources to advance north and clear Fremont. Frankly, most Californios didn't seem to care much who won, and hardly wanted to risk their lives on the matter. The rancheros weren't taking sides, and few men were joining to fight for a Mexico they had never seen, and didn't really know. However, help was on the way, for Kearney was in fact en route to California. With New Mexico apparently pacified, he left in charge a civilian named Charles Bent, brother of the proprietor of Bent's Fort. Kearney's orders specified that he should detach some of his force to go to Taylor, and he should go to California himself. Now keep in mind that Kearney had only an inkling of whatever Fremont might be up to. However, the thought probably worried him, for Kearney was close to the Benton Fremont family. The general undoubtedly hoped to find good news by traveling the hard Gila River route across the mountains west. The first confirmed news he heard of his friend took the form of the person of Kit Carson. That ever-loyal adventurer had been dispatched by Fremont with a commission to carry news to Washington, a new experience for Carson. The two crossed paths in Socorro, New Mexico. The news was overall favorable, but Kearney recognized the likely difficulties. Brigadier General Kearney prevailed upon Kit Carson to lead him and his band to California, and this one action probably averted disaster in about five different ways. Fortunately, Carson agreed, even though he was not really under any obligation to do so. To do otherwise would be to leave Kearney potentially to his death. The path was harsh in a way that even Stephen Kearney, who had traveled thousands of miles across the Northwest, found himself shocked by the desert landscape. This expedition, with only a hundred dragoons, had to cross basically the entirety of Arizona. There was water, yes, but no food, and nothing they could identify as a civilization. Not even all that many native peoples ventured here very often, for there simply wasn't anything to eat. Kearney did come across a band of Apaches, who offered no violence. However, the general also discovered, as he neared the borders, loyalist Californios with a message from now Governor and General of Flore, revealing the dangerous state of the American cause. There was nothing to do but hurry on, however. In December of 1846, Kearney and his men arrived in California, and met a small force Stockton had forwarded under Gillespie. However, without local intelligence, they ran straight into an ambush at San Pascal, not that far from San Diego. There, commander of the local loyalist band, Andre Pico, countered every move of Kearney and his small force of 100 dragoons and 30 marines. Pico had 150 himself, but all mounted. He knew the ground, and he wasn't worn out by an extreme journey, and he had supplies. Kearney had to get through, however, so he made an attack. 
in an early morning mist. He launched a charge, but Pico rapidly turned the tables on the Americans. His troops first feigned a retreat, and then immediately turned and charged themselves, lancing down a number of men in the melee. Being forced back, Kearney had to basically keep up a fighting defense. Although he managed to get some food from a local farm, he was then found himself stuck on a hillside, unable to escape. In fact, Pico's only weakness, and the only reason that he couldn't bring this to a close, lay in his lack of adequate firearms. Many of his men were armed with no more than lances. Now, in a small, swirling cavalry engagement, these served well enough. Eighteen dragoons fell in that one fight, and these were men who had crossed the continent. Fortunately for Kearney, he still had brave men and the ever-redoubtable Kit Carson. Carson and two other soldiers slipped away under cover of darkness, taking three separate roads in the hopes of meeting Commodore Stockton at San Diego. Somehow, all three men made it and survived the journey. Ironically, they probably needn't have bothered. Stockton had already dispatched a strong enough force to meet and aid Carney, and Pico withdrew rather than face the dragoons and marines together. In truth, Pico and his men had suffered casualties of their own and had little confidence in an even bigger fight. That being said, the Battle of San Pascal was also one of the final events on the road towards California joining the United States. Kearney brought one thing Stockton needed to win in the field, an understanding of land warfare. He drilled the combined force in the hollow square formation, an anti-cavalry tactic known even in ancient times. Though simple to describe, since it is literally just infantry forming a hollow square, it required tight discipline and quick action to assemble immediately when under threat. A month later, Stockton and Kearney met General Florey at the battles of San Gabriel and La Mesa. But this time, apart from some skirmishing, the Americans clearly held superiority. When the Loyalist force attempted to charge, they immediately stopped short after realizing the, that the Americans now had a far better organized force. No one particularly felt like riding within musket range, brandishing a spear. A whopping six men died on both sides in the battles combined. Florey, for his part, bowed to the inevitable. He ended his resistance and left California. But then Kearney ran into another challenger, John C. Fremont. Yes, Fremont being Fremont, he managed to run right into yet another fight, this time with his own government. Simply put, Kearney had a far better claim to being the legitimate authority than Stockton or Fremont, although they managed to work together as necessary. Stephen Kearney had actual orders from President Polk, whereas Fremont had a sort of vague understanding. In addition, Kearney, frankly, way outranked Fremont, and he really wasn't buying this whole bear flag nonsense. However, the questionable judgment of Commodore Stockton affected the situation. His term was up, and he needed to return to the United States. So he decided on his own authority to install Fremont in place as military governor. Why he thought he could do so, I don't know. Kearney had the proper orders to establish a government for California under the auspices of the United States, orders confirmed by Winfield Scott. Kearney liked Fremont, but he really liked nothing about Fremont at this moment. Particularly his sloppy adventurism and tendency to just, you know, do stupid things. Fortunately, Stockton's replacement, Commodore Schubrick, eventually backed Kearney on the matter, after about only a month of tension and argument, Kearney dragged Fremont back to Washington under threat of court-martial, 
which would be duly called in St. Louis. Kearney would be technically validated as Fremont was found guilty, but Polk, and insofar as it went, an eager nation, rescinded the sentence. Given the realities of the political landscape, Kearney had perhaps overreached himself on the subject of discipline, although Fremont was not exactly anyone's idea of good government. Polk certainly didn't plan on sending him back to California. And so there is the story of how California came under the jurisdiction of the United States. So we've spent a lot of time on the Mexican-American War, and perhaps it's a good place to wrap up. For the remainder of the war, California lay fairly quiet and awaited events in Mexico. Eventually, of course, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo went through, and California duly joined the United States as sovereign territory. But we are not done with California, because believe me when I say that wow things in California are about to jump sky high, and we are very shortly going to return to the story of John Sutter and Fremont. New Mexico, however, well, New Mexico wasn't quite so quiet. After Kearney departed New Mexico, his subordinate Colonel Donovan, acting as instructed, held on in the territory until a Missouri politician named Sterling Price, also lately appointed as Colonel, arrived to hold its defense. Now Donovan, freed to act, first brought a show of force against a nearby Apache tribe, and they agreed to peace. He then set out to cross Chihuahua and join Zachary Taylor. This they did, in the process wrecking of Mexican force thrice their size at the Battle of Sacramento. Donovan arrived just too late to assist at Buena Vista, but he and the Missouri Mounted Volunteers had nonetheless won considerable glory for their accomplishments, as well as further breaking resistance in the north. Their epic journey, all the way from St. Louis to Santa Fe to Mexico and back, also won them great praise. Back in New Mexico, the unfortunate Charles Bent faced down some very unhappy Native Americans who confronted him over one of theirs being imprisoned for a crime in the small town of Taos. Now, he had no knowledge of this and was literally just visiting his family at home. But the next morning, a mob attacked his house and butchered him. His family escaped, and they escaped with someone that you might not entirely expect, Mrs. Carson. Yes, Kit Carson's family lived in Taos at this time, and in fact the Bents and the Carsons were friends. The mob turned into an uprising. The uprising killed Americans and others. They attracted some local support, but Sterling Price almost immediately responded, and he subdued it with brutal force. No other foe offered itself, and for the time being, the New Mexico Territory quieted down once more. Stephen Kearney went on to temporarily govern in Veracruz, where he became deathly ill with yellow fever, the vomito that Winfield Scott so feared. Returning to the United States on his deathbed, he hoped to see Jesse Benton Fremont one last time. She refused, and he died without a reconciliation with them. So all of that being said, what did it all mean? Was this the beginnings of the Romantic West? Was there some kind of lesson to take away from all this? Maybe so, maybe not. I'm certainly not one to turn the Mexican-American War into some kind of grand life lesson. It was a matter of opportunity, of politicians who saw an opportunity and they took it. If there was a lesson at all, it lay in that clear leadership beats murky leadership. Polk knew what he wanted, and even though the United States had a sizable anti-war political alliance against it, its governing institutions were strictly adhered to. President Polk made an enemy in Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott, 
but he could also count on their skills and their loyalty. No Mexican leader could make the same claim. Even at a basic level, was General Antonio López de Santa Ana ever really fighting for Mexico or himself? It was never entirely clear, and that affected the course of the war. Another lesson might be that war could no longer be conducted upon Napoleonic lines with Alain Vital, or less poetically, guts and balls. You couldn't just conscript a bunch of brave men and have them go off and fight anymore. You needed more technical knowledge. War required good officers trained with modern methods. Sure, militia companies could fight well, and they did fight well, but the bulk of the effort still fell on the American regulars. The West Point-trained junior officers fought like lions, finding advantages or creating them in the middle of bloody battles. They also absorbed punishing losses and just kept fighting. Another lesson might be that flexible firepower was all-important. The Mexican military had often deployed much superior artillery, but had rarely been able to employ it effectively. Flying artillery pieces proved the equal of ten guns mounted on older immobile carriages. Similarly, fortresses proved unequal to the kind of aggression a modern military could deploy. Such were the lessons of this war. However, times were changing, and very quickly. Pretty soon, a new administration would take office, leading to a quick and decisive alteration in American politics. So come back next time when we explore the presidency of Zachary Taylor.